think we've got the music cut. Um, so before we get started, just a couple of thank yous. Thank you to uh, the Lovecraft Bar for having us. The event is free. So obviously drink up, take care of your bartenders in the Lovecraft Bar. We really appreciate yeah. uh, being here. Um, this is Nighttime Logic. This uh, series is uh, to bring bring you the best of genre and hopefully to reach out to different places and bring genre to people, uh, bring that convention experience to people who might not be able to get to the world fantasies and world horrors and uh, Necronomicons and bring some of that home here to you. So, and Nighttime Logic, it is the term coined by author Howard Waldrop and popularized, popularized by one of our favorite authors, Kelly Link, in an article I've yet to read in the Wall Street Journal because it's uh, trying to pay off. Yeah. So, uh, most importantly, thank you to you guys for coming, and we want to introduce our very special leader. Thank you to Peter Stroud for joining us. Yeah. So, thank you for making some noise because uh, Jason's got the camera there. We're going to, I've just received you know, permission from Peter to record it. So, so um, one of, the, one, of the, one of the things I, I, I credit or to, any, to uh, anyone who's ever been trapped talking to me about fiction in the last few years, it's always Robert Aikman, uh, Robert Aikman, Robert Aikman, and I credit Peter Stroud in a panel that I attended a few years ago. I had never, um, I never so much as heard of Peter Stroud, I'm sorry, uh, Robert Aikman, <laughs> and um, Peter... Peter wrote the introduction to one of Aikman's volumes back in 1988, uh, The Wine Dark Sea. And I wanted to ask you about, back then, the climate, in your introduction to, uh, to Robert Aikman, you said, uh, you described him as a writer, as a writer of the supernatural with cultivated and uh, sensitive sensibilities, but you didn't want to do that because at that time, you said it was to damn him. To, to, to describe a writer as cultural or sensitive, as this was back in a different, um, uh, a different time period of horror. Huh. So in the 30 years that have, that have um, since passed, since uh, that volume of Aikens and uh -huh. introduction, how do you feel the, the climate of horror, literary horror, uh, Aikman-esque horror, has changed? Oh, well, in the time since the publication of that book, it's... Uh the whole thing uh, of literary horror and the, and the existence of works that uh, really straddle the border between uh, literature and genre. All of that kind of work has become much more prominent and much stronger. And there, there are many more examples of it. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fact in our reading life now. Back then, it, it, it wasn't. Aikman was never a big hit. I mean, he was never on there, but hit parade. Uh, but the people who liked him really, really liked him. And um, he was so particular that uh, if you liked him, you tended to like him a lot. And if you, if you wanted another set of uh, expectations fulfilled, and if you, if you had a different aesthetic, then you hated it. 
a lot of friends of mine in the 80s really surprised me by telling me that they couldn't stand Robert but when I looked at who they were, then I understood why. It makes sense. Who are some of them? I know. I think I got Stephen King. Stephen <laughs> King never, ever liked Robert. And that's because he's like the anti-Aikman. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about the anti-Aikman, um, it's not it's not to anyone's credit or detriment. I no. Think Stephen, Stephen, I'm a fan of Stephen King's too, but Stephen King sure. uh, likes, he likes this, uh, Kelly Link would say, he likes his stories wrapped up. With a bow, perhaps, perhaps even even his most fantastic monsters, like the monster is in it, they all have rules and they all have explanations. And perhaps one of the characteristics that you say the, the anti king or what Aikman is is that uh, his stories had elements that defy yeah. explanation. Yeah, they um, they defy um, e easy understanding. They defy resolution. <laughs> And that, I think, is part of the reason they strike us so, um, so, so effectively. But, but it isn't just a matter of, of defeating expectations and, um, and not offering resolutions. There's another whole, whole stream that, oh, what can I think of? It, it, it has to do with, um, Looking, looking at experience of, at the same time that it's happening to you, and um, because of that, feeling a separation from one's own experience, um, and I think that is a very, very characteristic mold for most Aikman's main characters. Um, in fact, the stories of Aikman. The stories of Aikman that disappoint me a little um, are the stories in which that isn't true, in which something grotesque happens and then that's that, you know. The, the one about the frogs never particularly thrilled me. And the one about the giant evil twins never <laughs> 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 I just remember the names of the stories. But, but um, I, 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 I like the stories in which I think you can feel Aikman beginning really to stretch himself. And he, he very clearly knew what he was doing. Um, you went on after that 88 volume. You've, uh, I want to talk about some of the some of the other volumes that you edited and wrote uh, introductions for. Um, mm -hmm. Where That's where I'm beginning with Aikman. So I feel like that, that thread was continued. You edited a volume called uh, Conjunction, uh, Conjunctions 39, right. The New Fabulous, which was followed up in 2008 by uh, Post Children, right. The New Horror, and soon after that, the two volumes set of uh, American Fantasy. So, Fantastic Tale. Oh, yeah. the, American fin yes, the American Fantastic Tale. I'm using my own, my own shorthands here, so okay. thank you. Yeah. Um, Going, you know, going back to as Aikman perhaps was the, the beginning of this movement in in the introductions to some of those volumes, you described these genre writers as uh, I don't want to say <laughs> you spoke about uh, <laughs> using it as a dirty word when someone told you, oh Peter, your work transcends horror, yeah. or transcends genre, which was um, Perhaps you know, it was well intentioned. It was somewhat, somewhat of a, of a backhanded compliment. And I think you, you said it much better that 
what these authors that you were seeking to collect in these volumes were authors who were working in the modality and genre, yet they were so far, or at least so far on the on the edges, or so unfettered mm -hmm. that they were doing something that was some, that was still simultaneously genre, yet also ceased. It ceased to be identified as genre, yeah. and we have to put it into literature. Yeah, and uh, I, I was very excited by it. By this one, I let us say when I first read Kelly Link, I thought, "Oh my God, <laughs> where, where, where does, where does this come from? Uh, you know, what, what, what did Kelly put together? Uh, you know, in, in, in her own private little workshop to be able to write a story uh, like, like Lull or Stone Animals or the, the one about the." The, the, the big pocket or the big the big bag. The very handbag. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that, those, those stories seem seem to me to, to define a whole new territory. Um, there are other writers who uh, who came into occupy a territory that I that I hoped to to look at myself and did uh, certainly. But, but who, who, who saw it all in a new way and, and, and who didn't seem bothered, who didn't seem confined by, by uh, genre distinctions. And uh, I, like the, I, I like the sense of uh, kind of moral and imaginative freedom that that, that that implied. I also liked what I took to be an almost unexamined level of courage, that you had, to, you had to have guts of a kind to write against your, your, your genre. Uh, people who are genre writers, who know they are genre writers, who want all their lives to be genre writers, and, and who then turn, turn to it and do well, these people are crazy about their genres. They, they, the, the way they look at those genres, um, if you're Lawrence Block, uh, we were talking about mystery novels, say that kind, that kind of writer, um, they're already look, looking at the genre in an almost infinitely expansive way. But to me, the, the next crucial step is to be able to look at uh, a, a very, very good Lawrence Block novel and understand that that is literature even though it doesn't it doesn't it's not Kelly like it's not John Crowley uh, it's, it's wonderfully written but not beautifully written like Crowley, you know as Crowley writes and um, it, it, it simply does what it's, what, 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 what its own structures kind of impel it to do. But it does all that so well and with such depth. <laughs> but, uh, uh, there's a lot of feeling in, in, in the books that, that really work with that way. Um, I, I, I've never known how to make this distinction, really. I've never known how to describe it uh, in an effective way because it works only on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I did once, uh, when... Um, 
Conjunctions 39, uh, New Fat Fabulous was published. I, I, I went with the editor of this Conjunctions journal, uh, Bradford Morrow, to, uh, to a sales meeting with his distributors. And I had written out a statement um, in which I spoke of a matter of transcending your genre. Uh, I had been praised for or accused of transcending my genre a couple of times. And, and uh, of course, if, if you're a young writer and you publish four or five books and then someone comes along and says, oh, well, Joe X has completely transcended his genre, then Joe X is going to, be, is going to feel really good about that and uh, understand that his own personal merits have been perceived. However, it's a crap way to deal. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's too easy and it's sloppy. Um, and what I, what, what I said to the very, very nice people in the book distributorship that I think got me a few confused or poisoned glances was I said that being told for a writer to be totally transcends her genre is exactly like an African-American being told that she transcends her race. I think it's insulting to everybody, you know. You are one of these shitty people over here. You know, you're, you're, you're one of these people we don't really acknowledge. Oh, you happen to be so good, we can't ignore you, really. So we're going to let you squeak in the door, but everything you're associated with is going to stay firmly over there in the in the playpens of uh, genre writers. Um, there are genre writers whose books are playpens. There, there are plenty of them. They're good. They can be good, but they're uh, and nobody in his right nobody in his right mind would say this is a person literature because it, it's something else. But there are certain genre works that are our literature, and you can only figure out which ones they are by reading them. You know? And that's something you said in your introduction to Conjunctions 39, uh, in a roundabout way and in a direct way, that, that these, these works or these authors uh, have moved genre so far to the point where it's something unrecognizable that it can only be literature. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was the only that was the only direction that things could go. It was, that, that, that was quite clear to me for a very long time, and now I'm not so sure I write about it. Um, but I was think, thinking of some supernatural writers and some crime writers whose work had just drifted more toward conventional, as science fiction people say, what's not quotidian, it's a terrible word that science fiction people use to describe ordinary, I mean, non-genre writing. Domestic realism? What? Oh, domestic realism? No, 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 something very dismissive, like, uh, <laughs> like imitative, or so, yeah. something like Civilians that. Civilians or something like yeah, that. Yeah, anyhow, having <laughs> lost my point of that. In defining in defining literature, would you um, top of mind? Do you even have a de would you have a definition? Of no, I, I I think it's something you you know when you see. 
And I, I, I suppose I also have a predisposition, which I know is shaky and not, not fully to be trusted, for preferring work that begins slowly, that takes its time, that builds up its effects. Um, my whole early life as a writer was spent appreciating the way that particular thing was done by many, many writers. Any writer writes a long book is going to spend a lot of time building in little touches. And, and the little touches struck me as being essential to the success of the book. Um, they're just... Uh, so many of those writers... You know, how it takes off. So many of those writers that you mentioned, I, I have a list of them that in conjunctions, you you have so many great writers, but even the ones that you um, that you wanted to include, uh, Neil Gaiman, Chad Yeadville, Karen Joy Fowler, Jonathan Carroll, and you lamented that you couldn't grab Terry Bisson, Jeff Vandermeer, Ted Chang, The Departed, Graham Joyce, yeah. Jeff Ryman, Kit Reed, Carol Enschweiler, uh, Jeff Ford, and so many others. Um, whether we define it or not, uh, these, these people, they're still... Uh, you also mentioned that one of the hallmarks of great work, literature or not, is its longevity. Granted, 15 years is a blip in, in, the, in, the, <laughs> in the big scheme, but it's also significant. These people are still around. Yeah. Not only still around, they're still um, writing, thriving, and making waves. And they do good, good work. It's, it's, it's very nice. Uh, I mean, stuff like this, I, I guess what Dan and I are both trying to say is that work like this seemed to come out of nowhere all of a sudden at once as though as though people's imaginations had been prepared you know as though they'd been made ready in a lot of teenage bedrooms and a lot of mfa <laughs> classes <laughs> and all of a sudden bang here's all this great work you know um i find it uh, really thrilling and the, the the question is where does it go from from this extremely interesting point um, I guess what's going to happen is that Dan Sean is going to write bleaker, bleaker books in which everybody <laughs> you care about gets killed. Brian Evanson is going to continue to write bleaker and bleaker and bleaker stories about men who live on deserts and cut up their neighbors and kill them or, and are pursued by dogs. Kelly <laughs> uh, Link is going to do I can't even begin to parody Kelly Link's story. not of that character. You know, but just we we have these writers really worth watching, and uh, I am delighted to watch them. Um, I wasn't aware or, or thinking about these sort of things when Conjunctions Thirty Nine came out. I wasn't even aware. How um, that is a that's a liter for people that don't know. That's a literary journal. That's yeah. not an Ellen Datlow anthology. That's no. you know. Um, mm -hmm. uh, how how do the literary people take that? You know. Um, that you taking over their journal and saying, "I declare, this is this is this, now, this is literature too." Yeah, I mean that that was part of the reason uh, that whole enterprise struck me as uh, valid. But it also, as I should should have known, was was just the latest in a number of you know in a number of gestures that tried to link uh, the little magazine intellectual journal world with uh, that genre, genre writing. The most essential conversion that 
in uh, Conjunctions 39 had to do with the editor of Conjunction, uh, a writer, novelist, longtime friend of mine named Bradford Morrow, who always actually liked what I did. Uh, Bradford Morrow is a straight A, I mean, alpha male, intellectual, you know, Europeanized, uh, highbrow, high standards, high modernism, Pound, Elliot, Joyce, Ford, Maddox, Ford, Samuel Beckett, <laughs> you know, that, those are William Carlos Williams. Those are the people who really speak, speak to Brad Morrow. And, and that they invited me in in that way um, was, was an extraordinary act of faith and, and, and what gave me, for myself, faith was, was that Brad understood what we were doing instantly and he understood, he could tell the good work from the work that was just kind of so-so. The first piece we got when we edited that uh, issue was the long story by John Crowley called The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines. And I don't know if any of you have read that story, but it's one of the greatest stories ever written since the end of World War II. <laughs> it's fabulous. It's so meaningful. It's so full of feeling. It's, of course, written like chamber music. Um, it is a fully mature, rounded, ripe work of art of, uh, of, of a very high order. And it, it, nothing in it is simple. Nothing in it is resolved at all. Terrible things befall our beautiful, willing, supple boy and girl. You know, terrible things happen, and 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 minuscule, annoying, needling things ha happen too. Of course, um, there's this whole speaking world. And anyhow, so I, I read the story. And I thought, oh my god. It, if all we ever did was publish this story, we would have done something worth, worth doing. And the nice thing is, Bradford Morrow, who'd never even heard of Rowley before, loved it too. And so we, 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 we kind of hitched up and we marched off together. He was he was not Dalton Kelly. He's published Crowley since. He's published Liz Hand since. He's published James Morrow a couple times. Um, he's published a lot of people we know. And... Um, that, that, I think that, I, I, I was going to say it gives me hope, but, but that is, that's so sentimental. What I mean is that it kind of is hope. It, it shows that hope exists, you know. That's, you know, coming from, obviously he's it's coming from the, not the our side, but the literary, from the literary camp. Do you think that the, the writers that you mentioned, particularly Kelly Link, yeah. uh, that there were, there were some very overt, I guess, to people who would know these things, it took, me reading the criticism to, I don't, I don't know that much coming from the literary side, but in reading your introductions and some of the criticism on it, mm -hmm. that Stone Animals had a very straightforward, overt uh, Edith Wharton link, uh, yeah, right, right from the opening gambit, is, right. is this house haunted? Yeah. And, well, I had no idea, I've known of Stone Animals for quite some time, I had no idea, knowing a bit about how Kelly works, that Stone Animals was her, this was just her playing with Wharton, do you think? Uh, some of the people on the literary side picked up, like yeah. Brad Moore picked up on that right away. Yeah, sure. 
That's nice. Um, so you went on in, um, so in 2008 came, uh, came Post Children. A lot of a lot of uh, stories that were in um, that were in conjunctions made it into post children. No, Hall. no, no, it didn't want that. Well, some some, some, some of them something. did. Yeah. Um, you you again mentioned uh, hope. I guess it's a sentimental term. But you mentioned in that introduction that this movement or these sort of uh, stories were they were gathering steam, and you mentioned that mo. Uh, the real innovation, or the people that were beginning to accept it, were in in the small presses yeah. and indie shows. Um, yeah. In the years that have passed since then, have you found that still to be the case, or do you find uh, a wider mainstream? Uh, I think there's a wider ma- mainstream uh, for sure, but but there's extraordinary work being done in small presses because mainstream presses are so frightening and. Uh, I've never figured out how the money works anymore. You know, once 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 a step, once ebooks became a big part of the trade, that means that profits sank alarmingly. Um, hardback fiction still sells. There is no real category of means of mass market paperbacks anymore. Which was the great engine that kept everything else going for you know, for decades. Anyhow, that disappeared. Uh, trade paperbacks uh, look good and people buy them, but they don't buy them in the way that people used to go into the store and buy a couple of five dollar mass market paperbacks. You know? So something something vital was taken away, and publishers, of course, noticed and and began a. Run for cover, and they began to be much more intrusive with uh, writers uh, trying to push uh, writers to make the, the plots go on certain uh, easily appreciated, you know, readily sellable uh, styles, um, and. Now, now, when I look at the uh, people listed for awards in, uh, you know, and, and any of the awards in our world, it used to be three fourths of those uh, uh, selections were published by trade publishers. Now, almost none of them are published by trade publishers, and half of them are published by small presses I never heard of. But man, oh man, they're out there. There's a little person that did John Langan. What the devil is that? <laughs> <laughs> Ross, Ross Lockhart out in Petaluma, California, if I'm not mistaken, he showed a real willingness to do, uh, just quite frankly, to publish those works exactly as you yeah. contemplated. In, um, exactly. And, he, and he, he does it well. It's a good jacket on that book. You know, good blurb. It's, um, it's not, it used to be you could tell the small press books <laughs> By the because quality. they were the clumsiest, ugliest. <laughs> Mommy, I made this for you. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Some of the small press are the ones who are now putting the most care into it. I'm not yeah. sure if if you could be fair to call uh, tour.com a small press because no. they're not. No. But you know, um, when I heard Tom Doherty speak 
not in a different world fantasy than the one I heard your panel. Uh, yeah, he. Um, God, I don't know the answer to that, but Tom, one of Tom's answers. Did I do that? Of course I did that. It was the ghost of HBL. I had nothing to do with it. HBL doesn't do it. Alright. Well, as opposed to just pushing writers, like you said, pushing writers to have certain plots or even just yeah. shelving them and saying, oh, this is this is the biggest crossover when it isn't, there has to be yeah. some meat on the bones. Tor.com has, uh, there's a new model out there like that he's pushing. It's it's, it's the novella. It's, it's yeah. shown, um, shown a willingness to... Um, yeah. To publish a different, a different sort of book, I don't... I, it, it really is. I love all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think the market for it is always going to be a little uh, smaller than the market for the um, uh, contemporary equivalent of, let us say, Jane Eyre. If you write a 21st century Jane Eyre, everybody's going to read that book. And everybody should, for that matter. But, but, it, but it, it, it is a book that works in, in, along certain narrative models, a breathing models, and they, uh, and they do go down deep into our psyche, but, uh, but they're not this other thing, really. Uh, Jane, Jane Eyre is very, very beautifully conventional and deeply felt book, but it's not Carol Emsworth or anything like that. Do you think about these things when you're deciding on... Uh your next project or your project? I, you know, it's terrible, but I probably do. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to... Um, I used to uh, strive to have everything connect up after I've been working away for about a year and, and connect up in ways previously un, uh, unforeseen so that in the last hundred pages, the novel could make a gentle, long descent back to earth and, and have everything in it all knitted together uh, if things were left unresolved because they weren't very important things. Um, there is a great satisfaction in tying things up and organizing things. Uh, I've I, I, I lumped, well, let's say, here, a book that is beautifully organized down to the down to the sentence level and the elements in the individual sentence. Such a, a uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a prayer for own meaning. Oh, uh, it's breathtaking. <laughs> you know, it, and it does its job. It has a job, and and it goes ahead and doesn't. Why does that little boy talk that way? You know, why does he talk all caps? Why does, he do this? <laughs> Why does he do these goofy things? Uh, you know, and then at the end, you, know, you think, "Oh, well, that's why." God damn! You know? uh, I'm I'm obviously seeking not to uh, incur any spoilers. No, I don't believe in spoilers. I think spoilers are childish. Actually. I mean, it's childish to object to. Since uh, I want to think that good books can be read twice, and then you read the second time with the same pleasure as the first. Anyhow. I'm really interested. Uh, yeah, okay, well. Uh, <laughs> 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 
mic stand. That's all right. I'll sit back further. All right, welcome back, everyone, to part two. some of the work that Peter has brought to us and other authors, so I'm going to ask Peter some questions about his work. Um, I had the chance to sit in uh, at a convention that's called ReaderCon, yeah. and uh, you gave it coffee. There was coffee there, so it was actually a coffee talk. Coffee or a coffee talk. Yeah. Um, someone, I don't remember the exact question, but the, the response that you gave to the question, when someone asked you about your work or how you view your work, was uh, you talked about having if your work is trying to explore the effect the, of the present, of how it is, and I think you punted to, I believe it was Faulkner who said how the present is always being uh, affected by the past, by uh, society, uh, history, and personal history. Um, maybe if you could talk, and I know that I think you what you had in mind at that point, you were talking about uh, the work I think you had just finished Coco. Oh. About that. So oh, okay. You're going to talk about how either that novel in particular, or how that what what you meant by uh, sure. that phrase. This was uh, the first uh, anything like a theme that I uh, noticed in my own work, and the reason I noticed it was uh, came up in the book after Mark. Um, people have to discover why events around them are happening the way they are, and they're and people, why people are behaving in certain ways, why people are clearly lying about certain things, and why people, uh, other people are closed off and uh, aren't able to live fully uh, articulated and inventive life. And, and the answer for all of those things has to do with bits of the past that uh, people carry around with them on their backs, uh, that they recreate daily. About this is one of the basic truths of human experience. We um, we usually don't think of the, about the way our the past our, of, our, of our lives um, influences and directs the, the the lives we have in the present. But it's really true. Um, I wish I could remember the Faulkner quote, but it, but it's it, 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 it ends with the, the past isn't even the past, meaning the past is is the present. And if you if you uh, if you are fully, as they say in a different context, awakened, or because uh, I don't want to say awoken, because that would be uh, bad, bad. That would be bad. Um, that would be awkward and um, inappropriate. Um, however, awakened will do 
Um, unless you are fully awake and looking at things in, in, in a non-judgmental, accepting that, you'll never see this stuff. I mean, so I wrote all these books, and it seemed to me that, by gum, I did have this theme, which I thought was pretty cool, and uh, Fal Fal Faulkner liked that theme. Um, it, 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 it seemed very, very roomy, um, but it also clearly had more resonance with me than um, I than I understood. Uh, I wrote all these books um, in the whole early stages of my career, big complex books usually, about, about you know, confidences, agreements, betrayals, crimes, in, uh, that happened in the past, in the, in the past of families, rippling through the present-day families and destroying them and torturing people's lives, and having all of these goofy, goofy, supernatural things surge up out of the ground <laughs> in, in, in front of the characters and destroy their lives and uh, I keep everything I hope uh, hopping on the surface of the page, keeping the, the lovely reader uh, happy with uh, what she was reading, and uh, you know, con conducting my business as a professional author in what appeared quite satisfactory way, and it was. Every, it, 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 everything was working, except that I wasn't really thinking about what I was doing, as one does in American life. I came with wrong. <laughs> Things began to go wrong. Uh, I, I reached the magic age. Guess what? What was the what's the what's the magic age to which American male lives tend to run around? Seventeen. Forty. <laughs> 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 you look you you look in the paper, and if, if if you see that there's some wonderful hedge fund billionaire with a happy family and and children on sailboats, who's found in a seedy motel with huge quantities of cocaine and a bleeding whore, and, <laughs> and a couple of criminals, as he's arrested on his way out of the motel room, some cop says, oh, and um, Mr. Rujan, how old do you happen to be, sir? And he says, well, I just turned 40. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so that, it's, it's, it shouldn't have happened. But it did. I became uh, un undone and un. And Is this the time right before you wrote Coco? Yeah, it was. Uh, we're going back a couple years before I wrote Coco, and because I, I, I was not being my best self at all. I, I, I began to work with a a psychoanalyst. I started off with um, I started off with what we call therapy. And then I moved into the gigantic, by now quite uh, antiquarian pool, like swimming pool of psychoanalysis. And so I learned. I mean, because there you are. If you're in psychoanalysis, you don't have a choice. You are going to learn things about yourself that uh, 
that will improve your life, that somehow make you feel, they don't make you feel any better about yourself, but you do, if they do allow you to understand things. And what I came to understand was the simplest thing imaginable, and it should have been clear to me from my seventh year, uh, because something had happened to me which did, in fact, reshape all the rest of my life, and, 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 and which accounted for the extraordinary, morbid, operatic, um, you know, glittering parade of supernatural stuff that I had invented. And, and that was that when I was a child at the age of seven, I was, I was hit by a car, and I had, and I had uh, acres of misery. Some of the misery was psychological. It was psychological for the, to, in the sense that something had happened to me which I could not accept. I had to accept it because I couldn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. I had to learn to walk again. I had, I had to deal with constant pain, which alleviated by little things and syringes that mean-spirited Dickensian Nurses would, would 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 dispense a sort of according to some very strict schedule that only they understood. So if you're screaming with pain and you're pushing the button, nobody comes. And then you push the button for the nurse, and finally, you know, Nurse Bratchett arrives, and she's got the bloody needle. You can see it. So you say, "Oh, thank you very much. I really need that now." And then they say. No child who was in the position I'm describing would ever forget these words. Oh no, you don't need that yet. <laughs> you 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 can wait an hour, Peter, before your pain is relieved because it's only been three hours. You, we need you to suffer for four hours, uh, and the, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's goofy to think about it, and yet it did seem to me as though the suffering of children didn't count for much. And, and anyhow, there, there wasn't much anybody could do about mine because I just had to heal. But everything changed. I, I had been killed. I'd been disassociated. I'd been dismembered. I had, of course, but, but this is the way it struck me. Um, and everything about my relationship to my life was different after that. And, and my relationship to my own body had changed. My relationship to my childhood was irre irretrievably warped. In fact, I think childhood left. I couldn't be a child anymore. I had to pretend to be a child. And so we see yet, yet again one of these beautiful occasions of, uh, of uh, splitting of consciousness where, where one imagines the normal child would open his eyes, open the window, and say, oh, sunlight, oh, bright green springy grass, oh, my beautiful baseball glove, I'm going to go outside and hit a few baseballs around and get a few other kids, and then we play a baseball game. Now, that is the mythic Huckleberry <laughs> approach to childhood, but the, the approach I'm thinking of is, oh, okay, it's sunny. That means... Uh, they might want me to play baseball. Well, I suppose I could play baseball. I could. I might even have a pretty good time. I'd much rather be in the house of reading all those books I got. But uh, 
but if I get out there and I pretend to be good, everything will be worthwhile. I mean, no child should have to think about his own process that much, or to 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 be forced to become aware of his own situation in life. I mean, children of alcoholics have to think that way. People whose parents have great physical disabilities have to learn to think that way because they're, they take on so much more uh, of a role in, in, in the world and children ordinarily uh, are, are capable of. Um, once I discovered that there was this big, murky, uh, pulsing engine that was very, very dark, that was in my life, that was screwing me up magnificently as I gazed out of my bedroom window in my, uh, the morning after my 40th birthday. <laughs> Once I began to understand the, the, the causes of my own behavior, then I could bring the consciousness that uh, I had found so troublesome in childhood and, and barely knew what to do with them in my early adulthood when I was very full of myself and I was writing books people liked. Uh, you know, I was, I was being celebrated here and there. I was a guy who wasn't even 40. So, and I, I was not the most centered, rounded of, of human beings. So I kind of went spiraling out, out, of, uh, out, of, out of control. However, once I began to notice the actual rules, the rules of my life, that, that meant that these ancient events, like antediluvian, <laughs> archaic events in my childhood, Things that happened so far back, I didn't want to think about them. I couldn't really remember hardly any of it, of course. Um, but all, all, all of that meant that I had these sticky, angry, complex feelings, which are in normal life almost inexpressible, but which in you know, fiction, uh, are worth a real goal. You know, um, if if what I'm what I'm trying to say in this uh, extremely roundabout way is that in the in those years in my early forties, my mid in my early forties to my like 47, 48, uh, I I I was a very raw human being. I was pretty much living the way I should. I mean, I, 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 was, I was still married, I had my kids, the kids went to good schools, I worked like crazy. Um, I, I didn't go out and burn down buildings or rob banks and, you know, blackmail people. Or, I didn't go to hotel or motel rooms and bags of nefarious substances and bad girls. Um, <laughs> I didn't do any of that stuff. I stayed because as raw as I was, 
I don't need that. What, what I needed was to look at other pieces um, that kind of reminded me of mine to see what those people had done with their lives and the way they had managed their art and the people that I seized upon as having the most to say to me for the most extraordinary cases of extremity um, I've, 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 I've seen since. I'm thinking of the photographer Joel Peter Whitkin. Joel Peter Whitkin is a very, very strange uh, photographer of erotic, freakish, grotesque, uh, <clears throat> hot, hot, highly um, stylized and, and, and posed photographs. When Joel Peter Wickens first met was when he was a, like a five-year-old child in San Francisco. He came out of the house with his grandmother one morning. There was a big noise in the street, and then he heard a screech of metal, and he looked down. And he saw a severed human head rolling across the cobblestones that come to rest in the curb. Welcome to life, little boy. <laughs> so Joel Peter Wickens, I, I saw this guy as a fellow sufferer as a, as a fellow traveler and uh, and I bought I bought all, all of his books I've been I bought some prints um, it doesn't mean quite as much to me then as it, as it once did but there are plenty of corpses in, in Whitkin paintings in Whitkin photographs at the end of the first book of his that I ever bought there's a, a, a letter from Whitkin in which he's advertising for people he'd like to see show up at a studio. People of unusual size. People with unusually large, unusually small, or unusually formed genitals. Persons with very conspicuous uh, scarring. You know, <laughs> conjoined twins. And there was this long, long list of uh, the kind of people at Peter Wickham knew were his people and that he wanted to, to, to put in the studio so he could tie things to their penises and uh, pose them against dead monkeys and do all these things that he did. Um, I, I'm apparently not making his work sound very appealing. <laughs> you come to my house and I'll show you. It's, it's stunning work. I mean, you do have to have a bit of a stunt. Anyhow, um, that, that this period was uh, in, was one of intense learning for me, and I did I could I could tell that my work was getting better. I could tell that I was getting somewhere, that I was going somewhere, and that where I was going was a moral dimension. It wasn't it wasn't just making up the coolest, nastiest stuff I could think of. It wasn't about just about trying to scare readers anymore. It was about trying to open up very, very large experiences of terror, pity, uh, horror, dread, um, longing, loss, uh, to op open all of this and, and make it available in a, in a, in a, 
in a valid way, so 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 that it didn't cheat, and and so that the characters were the story. You know, there was a whole story there, but the, the the way the story worked the way it did because those people made the story up, and it was about them. Um, it, it, it was it was. I, I feel very lucky that. Uh, I was given the means to examine my life at that point because it was the it was the best thing I ever did. It, it meant that I could really see what was going on. I could also now in, in psychoanalysis, one lies upon the couch, one looks up and sees the ceiling, one speaks to the ceiling and says every little thing, crazy, obscene, boring, you know, obsessive. It goes through your mind every single thing. Of course, no human being can do that. Nobody, I'm not that honest. And I hit a lot of stuff, but mainly I did. I just spoke. And, and when you, and you do that long enough, then you learn the ability to listen to yourself. And when you listen to yourself, you hear what you're really saying. And after that, an even better thing happens, you hear what other people are really saying. There was a long, long time when I could, when I had real insight into what people who didn't know me very well, people who didn't know me, uh, were saying when they didn't know what they were revealing. Um, anyhow, it, 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 it was it was fabulous. Uh, you you wish to you wish to speak. I don't wish to speak. <laughs> I, I wish to listen. I'm here and speaking to break up that incredibly. Uh, that, that train of thought, it's just something that dawned on me when you said, when you're speaking, uh, if you speak like that, even quasi honestly for so long, it rings a bell, something that uh, people I've worked with in creativity, um, there's uh, Julia Cameron, who's a uh, um, talented artist in her own right, but she's known for, for being uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, ex-wife, and she mm. um, works a lot with creativity. And one part of her process said something very akin to what you're saying, oh. which is a uh, she says, you know, she encourages her students or her, her method to write, to mm -hmm. write, <clears throat> write the top of the mind stuff for 15 minutes and for a period of months. And it's, yeah. and the point is, how long can you go without lying to yourself? Yeah. And I think the, she hit what, <laughs> she hits on the same two things that you're saying. Mm -hmm. At some point, you're going to, you're going to be honest. And at some point, you're going to learn how to listen both to yourself yeah. and to other people. And both, right. both of those things are going to make you a better writer. It is breathtaking. Uh, I mean, sometimes the things you hear are things you cannot tell people you just heard, you know, uh, because it'd be, it'd be too wounding or it'd be to take advantage of, uh, of uh, a sensitivity on, on their part. And, there's, you know, there's, there's no point in doing that. But, but one does have this extra layer of understanding. Uh, now, because I haven't done this in years, I'm no longer speaking to the ceiling, and, uh, and this uh, female authority figure isn't sitting over my shoulder occasionally speaking at brilliant length and uh, telling me what I should have seen and what I just said. Um, all that, I mean, all, all, all of that. And it sounds, um, it sounds uh, like uh, 1950s. And, uh, Vienna, but it's, it's, it still works. The trouble is, it takes a long, long time and costs a lot of money. Were you, were you thinking when you were writing Coco and you're going through this experience mm. that you come to that epiphany that oh, this is 
these are some of my themes. I mean, talk about the themes of the past. But yeah. You, you, had, you had come to that consciously? Yeah, very much. Uh, Coco was the first book that really demonstrated uh, to anybody who cared um, that, that I had a new level of understanding, I think, or certainly that I had a new way of thinking about how fiction is made. Uh, I, I, when I say it that way, it sounds very, it sounds nice and clean, but of course, I wasn't aware that I did know that, but I, what I did know was that I'd learned long before I'd learned the one essential thing that every fiction writer really has to learn, which is to trust himself and to proceed without stopping, without waking into an absolute darkness. Because as you proceed in the darkness, there's always a little more light and a little more light and a little more light. But um, what I had to learn. after my earlier work was a more radical version of that process. So it involved, does anybody remember Mr. Magoo? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, my favorite vision of the author's life, of the evolved author's life, is, is Mr. Magoo, who happens somehow to walk upon a girder that extends into a hotel room, and he walks out, out, out of the window, along the girder, and he steps off the girder, and whoops, another girder comes along just at that moment, and swings along, carries him over there, he's blissfully unconscious of what's happening. Another girder steps on and takes him over there, and finally the final girder brings him softly back to Earth, and he's uh, had this miraculous series of escapes, and he's unscathed. And uh, I propose that as a model for how to proceed. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I learned about fiction writing, I learned from Mr. Magoo by Peter Stroud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to even postulate to say that I can say what literature is, but uh, the author Jeff Ryman says, uh, one of the things he puts forward is he, he puts it as a series of boxes. And I'll talk about two of Jeff's boxes. He says the first box is, you have to edutain. And what sparked my mind is when you said, oh, when I was creating Coco, I wanted to come, come across in a way that was real, in a way that counted, mm -hmm. in a way that was, I'm paraphrasing you, but organic mm -hmm. to these characters. Mm -hmm. So I'm just sort of translating that and saying, like, okay, you, you wanted to write a story that had merit, that entertained. Yeah. And the second box, if you don't do that, Jeff says, and well, you don't get to go on to be literature, you don't go on to do anything else, because if you don't entertain the reader, yeah. the reader's out. But that Very second cool. box yeah. is... I'll say it in as most general way as possible. The second box is that does something else. I won't say what I want to say what no. that something else is, but it sounds like in Coco or in that process, you're doing a lot of something else. I mean, the first something else is you are uh, in that quote at ReaderCon. You said, "Oh, uh, one of the beauties of being an author is you get to uh, you get to write and figure out where you are at." Mm -hmm. So the first thing you're doing, that's something else, is you're, you're going through this incredible personal process yeah. in a way that's also becoming something that is art or entertains other people. It's crazy, but, but the, 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 more, the, the more I go along, the more and more I feel that the process is really what it's about. The, the, what you wind up with at, at the end is what you rescue out of the process. Um, you have to think hard about it, and you have to pull it through, you know, at, 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 at every stage, but uh, uh, 
I think the more one immerses oneself, the more one considers everything and weighs everything and uh, thinks about it uh, two or three times more, the better the final product is going to be. I, I was also thinking of uh, something like moral seriousness. Not that I would actually ever be able to claim anything like that for myself, though. Maybe, you know, mm -hmm. but um, it's a, it's, it's, it, it isn't exactly among the top three of the, the stuff I'm trying to live. Uh, work for it. However, before I started, before I even thought of doing Cocoa, I, was, I had finished the novel Floating Dragon and I had finished um, The Talisman. Both of those were tough experiences. Uh, floating Dragon wasn't so bad, I mean, it, was, it just took a long time, but it was, it was sure fun. And, um, you know, I've got somewhere that I, that I liked and I thought it was a, a, a worthwhile thing and certainly a lot of people like, like reading the book. Um, but I didn't really want to write anything more like that, except, but that was all I know how to do. And so I was a little puzzled and a little, little um, stalled. So I'm, I was up in my office in West Park, Connecticut, it was like 11 o'clock, the TV was on. I'm sure I have a handy, like, gallon of whiskey in my glass. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I, I was watching a program about uh, the dedication of the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington. And it was one of the most beautiful and moving things I'd ever seen. All of these raggedy Vietnam types uh, still half of them wearing their old uniforms, uh, saying goofy, sideways, par partner, side-of-the-mouth things to one another, also saying things like, airborne all the way, you know, <laughs> and uh, full of these slogans. And then coming out of the mist, actually, and, and, and get, getting up to what I still think, and will always think, one of the most beautiful public monuments we have in American life because it, it is like embodied grief. I think it's just, it's a perfect expression of what that monument was supposed to be for and an expression of what the people who go to it want to see. They get the experience they want and that's a difficult experience again in, in national life that trivializes everything it can. You can't trivialize that. But anyhow, so I'm watching this. And it occurred to me that I knew what these people were going through. And what they were going through was profound and beautiful. It, it, it really did move me and it spoke to me. And I, of course, had a little notebook and I, of course, had a little pencil. Gee, what do you know? I still have those things right here. Here's a little pencil and here's a little notebook. Um, I recommend these. <laughs> you know, these sort of humble objects very highly. Um, so I wrote down, I wrote down, never write anything you don't believe in. And I like the look of that. Mm -hmm. So then I wrote the same thing all over again in my little notebook. Never write anything you don't believe in. And um, I think, I mean, that, 
I, 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 I acknowledged the existence of a possibility that had not occurred to me before that. And it was, uh, you know, something, my, my, everything in my inner life directly poked toward that. I wasn't going to talk about the talisman, but it's a perfect segue to the next theme that in uh, uh, Tibbetts' book, there's a book that came out recently called the, uh, I believe it's called The Gothic World of Peter Stroud. The Gothic World of Peter Stroud. John Tibbetts. Um, he, he recognized the theme of the doppelganger, the shadow self, the, oh, yeah. the twin in, in your work. And just in hearing you talk, uh, he, he, he begins the chapter pretty ominously with yeah. a, couple of, well, a couple of quotes, but a literary person, literary person. And the third quote is a quote of Peter's, and I asked him if it was okay to ask him about these topics before, but I believe that quote was, I wanted to wear my own blood. Oh, I did. Yeah, and that's you know, okay. Hey, let's start this chapter on <laughs> on literary doppelgangers with that quote. Um, how aware? Uh, well, you have to be aware. For one of the one of the things that I find amazing <laughs> about your work, Peter, is how starting in Coco, you just sort of sneak it in there. But how there's a character in Coco named Peter Straub who helped. Uh, who helped, uh, I'm not sure if he appears in the book, but he's referenced as being, oh, and Underhill went on to uh, to, to co-write a book, or it was revealed that the, the author character in the book, Underhill, is actually writing with this guy named uh, oh, yeah. Peter Straub. Um, and then in, in The Throat, all, all that comes up again. And uh, so... You know, Tibbetts goes on to mention uh, all these all these themes of, of doppelgangers oh. in your work, uh, in the, the concept of the twinners and the talisman, um, uh, in Mr. X, uh, all the comes in a lot. Um, was that just you playing in your sandbox? Um, yeah, no, definitely the sandbox. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, I don't know. I think um, I think it's a very rich theme and. As, as our American literature moves on and um, and reflects the you know great transformations uh, and achievements of the past, it seems to me that we're, we're dealing more and more with trauma. We're dealing more and more with uh, imperiled sense of personhood that, that is a threatened idea of sense of self which is threatened because of the duality of perception, um, which is uh, the product, which produces an extremely terrified degree of loneliness in the human being because you think, oh gee, am I this guy or am I this guy? Do I exist at all? Am I real? Is, do I, does anything I care about really mean anything in this world? Do I just think it means things because I care about it? You know? All these little things that we get into in our mind. Um, that, in a way, it's a it's a, a kind of diminution of our national li literary enterprise. But it certainly is where our those, our you know, wishes as a people, our thoughts as a people, seem seem to be taking us. Uh, and the only thing that that makes me think this is good is a not everybody's doing it, but also. It does 
it does validate emotions like sadness and the apprehension of loss one sometimes has really almost overwhelming some, sometimes. Um, the sense that here we are living these lives, but it, it doesn't seem quite to be the right life. <laughs> it's uh, what we, we, this is what we have, but wasn't there supposed to be something else? Wasn't there supposed to be more? Um, there's something, some, some, something that seems pre-designed and uh, uh, too easy, or maybe I just Maybe all of a sudden it's only true of me, but but I, I as as I read especially short 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 stories, I can see that all almost all of these stories are about loss of one, one kind or another, and uh, I think that's that's profound. Uh, I, I think we 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 have to look at the amount of loss in our lives, and we have to look at the amount of grief in our lives, or we simply do not, we are not in possession of our lives. Um, I mean, I, I learned two great things over the course of my uh, uh, various e explorations. Let me see if I can remember what they are. <laughs> 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 Let me see now. Um, um, you don't mind if I just think, is your right? I said two great things, didn't I? Yeah. The self or what? No. Sense of loss was uh, something you found. Sense of loss was something very profound and something very necessary yeah. to be in control of your own. Yeah. So, yeah. well, it's a, it's a one 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 of the great things I learned may have been that in our culture we we wish to enforce and celebrate a kind of positivity. Uh, we, we, we believe, despite all evidence of the contrary, that, uh, that evolution and our forward progress through history is also actual progress. And that until very recently, I don't think we're allowed to feel that anymore because we can see that the planet's really groaning and moaning. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the acceptance of the less than optimistic uh, has always been a bit dodgy in our world, and, I, and uh, I'm happy to think that uh, I might have some, something to do with being something. It's okay to... It's, over, it's okay to feel all this stuff. In fact, it's necessary. Uh, there are no... Once you lose something, it is lost. There are no... Once, once you've lost a certainty, as one does, all, you know, especially 
growing up. And it was one certainty after another. Those certainties are never, ever restored. Other certainties might come into place, but they don't have the grandeur of the earlier certainties. They, uh, the flaws of every system become more and more apparent. Um, it's just, we have to, we have to see these things. The fact that we have the present <laughs> I think makes all of so inevitable. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not possible uh, to look at, at what that guy is doing and, and to think that everything is really going to be okay. You know? yeah. Or that everything is okay. Um, and that, uh, because if we, if we start to think that way, then, then the fact that uh, P.T. Barnum is in the White House is going to look sort of like Oh, well, okay, we have P.T. Barnum, and he tells lots of lies, and he's, he's you know, improvising his way across the stage, and so It's hard to remain optimistic, and it's even more important to do what you're telling us, which is to, it's okay to embrace the darkness and embrace yeah. the shadow, and Good maybe, man. maybe if that didn't create the situation now, and maybe in the big picture of us, yeah. are, one of the things that's wrong, or that, that one of the things that happened to American society was not embracing that darkness and not embracing that shadow had yeah. or can have consequences. Yeah. I mean, in, 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 in American life, we're always going back and forth between beaver cleaver and, 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 and heavy metal or something. It's not a very evolved way to think. Um, I'll just ask you, you know, it's hard to it's hard to come grab some optimism after that, but I'll take you back to uh, your 2007, um, it was the book from Cemetery Days called Sides, and you talked about, um, you talked about magic, and I guess it's, it's as close to an optimistic last topic that I'll, I'll throw out there. You, you said something very simple, but deceptively simple. You said, I'm talking about magic, you know, as, as above, uh, so, so, so below. So below. Mm -hmm. And the context of that was you we were talking about that magic is more than the stage magician. Magic is, is almost giving us permission. It's not only to see that see that darkness, which is the, the important as the horror writer, important as the reason, but maybe the other part of horror is the, the sense of magic or the sense of wonder. Yeah, yeah. I hate to uh, adduce the, the sense of wonder because. Um, the, preserve, the desire to preserve a sense of wonder almost uh, did, did science fiction some damage, I think, because it was clearly some, something that was, was very important to, to science fiction. Then I think it became less so. Uh, it's not. Uh, I think I think there's much to wonder at, uh, and, but I think what what is to be wondered at is simply the. Um, Facts of human experience and the uh, and the uh, unanticipated entrances into a kind of uh, meditative uh, wonder, a kind, a kind of uh, higher uh, appreciation um, than one can have. I don't see myself as pessimistic at all, and it's just the, the my. My dialogue is sounds that way be, be, be because of the way uh, American dialogue is normally cast. 
I don't see anything that I have said as being unhappy in itself. I think the whole point of human life is to get as much of the world inside you as you can, and you know, to behave as, as well as, as you can, and be as kind and generous as you can to other people, but also simply to open oneself to what, what is really going on all around, and by which I mean buds flowering and people smiling and the sounds of some somebody's high heels tapping the sidewalk and the smell of rain, you know. All these all these kinds of details have a kind of sacredness. <laughs> and and they, 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 they have a kind of sacredness because they can strike you like, uh, like, 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 uh, like, like, like fresh air in the spring. They, 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 they are refreshing, but they, they also seem to open up into more beautiful realm. Not a very, not a very religious person, but you, you said something that sounds uh, there's a it's couple, fairly religious. There's a Kabbalistic notion that says when you're talking about so above, so below. That in the Kabbalist tradition, they say the most religious or the most sacred thing you can do is not the afterlife, not this, not that, but it is to live your life now and mm-hmm. to engage fully in the life so below. Sure. This may be sort of the opposite of so below, so above, which. Wraps up. Right. I'll just see if there's any. Well, maybe have time for one, maybe two questions. I, I should just. I, I just want to say, uh, as a capper to all this, absolutely. That that I a couple of times I have written into books that there that there is a, there is another world, and it's the same as this one. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I really look forward to exploring. More, uh, but you know, I haven't read all the work yet. But from, <laughs> from, no, from hearing all these things and seeing the tips of the icebergs that I do, I really look forward to diving Very appreciative. Thank you. So, Peter, thank you so much. Let's see, if we have time. Anyone have any questions uh, for Peter? I do. The young man in the front. Uh, what's your name, sir? <laughs> <laughs> what's your name, Sonny? Uh, uh, Nick Kaufman. Oh, we have a question from a Nick Kaufman. Little Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hi, Peter. So you have a number of uh, recurring characters in your novels. Uh, you spoke a little bit about uh, Timothy Underhill, yeah. uh, who's in Coco and The Throat. And, um, he's all over the place. He's all over the place, yeah. Uh, but I was interested, actually, in uh, hearing a bit of your thoughts on the origin of Tom Pasmore, who is, I think, your most Sherlock Holmesian character. He's very much sort of a recluse, and he helps Timothy Underhill with yeah. his uh, investigations. Where did that idea come from for this character? Tom Pasmore. Um, Tom Passmore came about as uh, one half of a sort of Daphne du Maurier novel that I, that I wanted to write um, after after Coco, and uh, I wanted to write by Daphne du Maurier. I mean, uh, I, wa- I wanted it to be about a pair of identical twins who were each other's doppelganger, in other words, one, one of whom who do not know of each other, one of whom was raised in wealthy misery with a very, very uh, un, uh, uncomprehending family, and the other is raised in real brutal misery in a shed out back of a house uh, where, a pair of, uh, where a bunch of semi-criminal people live, and they, 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 they just beat the hell out of them. And the, the book begins on the day when the guy in the shed, who's named Matt, escapes. And he's, 
he walks out into the Iowa Milwaukee with blood on his eye. And uh, I thought this was going to be a very interesting story in which um, this young man from the east side of this island, or rather, the, you know, a child brought up with some kind of money and societal entrances, and so he knows, he, he, he knows the important people on the island. Um, what happens when people start to think that maybe he is committing all his crimes? And, and, and anyhow, so I started to um, write, write, write this novel, and I, I thought it was a Daphne du Maurier novel, because I just wrote a biography of Daphne du Maurier, and I thought she was really fascinating. Um, I also liked her work. Um, then, across the street from the well-off boy, there was an old man who was a detective, a private detective, a consulting detective, who never left his house, but worked by examining old newspaper records and, uh, and public records, transfers of properties. Uh, he was a, a, a wizard at doing this stuff, and he, just by thinking about things in the right way, solved crimes all over the place of the brought jewelry back to the disconsolate woman and um, solved uh, Daddy's murder. And the, 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 the guy who escaped from jail was, was discovered because of this guy. Anyhow, so in other words, that man is Sherlock Holmes. He's, a, he's an older guy named Lamont von Heilitz. Um, and the boy becomes fascinated. Now this completely lost up my wonderful little Daphne du Maurier <laughs> Because all of a sudden the book didn't want to be about this guy, Matt, who was the best character, and uh, who's writing about whom, uh, the best writing about him. I, I mean, I could tell it was really locked in that stuff. Only the book didn't want to do it. The book wanted to be about Tom Passmore looking into the case of this disturb, disturbing, and, and, and yet, um, very high-functioning, eccentric old guy who lives across the street. He's, he's, he's disdainful of him, he's frightened of him, and, and of course he's fascinated by him. So then I realized, okay, what I'm doing is I want to write a novel, it turns out I want to write a novel, about a, a young teenage boy who discovers that Sherlock Holmes lives across the street from him. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that's about the coolest thing I ever thought of. You know, <laughs> because I still, I still have a helpless uh, admiration for Sherlock Holmes, and it still stands as a you know real uh, sample of one, one, one kind of thing done extremely well, beautifully well. Um, so, 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 it's, so I started that. Then. Then Tom Passmore be, acquires the habits, the wardrobe, the the, the modality, the, the 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 methods of of Lamont von Heilitz, and it turns out, big spoiler, oh, he's his son. You know, he's not the son of this weak, terrible guy who, who acts like his father, but his, his father is this little dude over here. So then I. If you've been following along what I'm saying, there's um, there's an underlying assumption that 
people begin doing investigations because there's something, there's some bit of information that has been withheld from them. People become detectives because they have something to detect. Tom Passmore has this whole sordid, horrible, corrupt history in his family that is his job to unearth and to make public and to and by by doing so destroy the political structure of the island where where he lives and lots and lots of people's lives. Of course, those lives deserve to be destroyed <laughs> you know, because they're criminal. Um, anyhow, I liked I liked the assumption that. What we do is very involved with who we are, and and the final uh, the bit of reasoning that, that that I very consciously took in that book was was to re realize that the detective is the figure of of the artist that uh, he he's self sufficient he works alone. He works on massive projects. He thinks a lot. He feels a lot. He's he's separated. He uh, he he can dress in these goofy, extraordinary, old-fashioned, you know, Georgian clothing or you know, really posh stuff. Uh, because it doesn't matter. He doesn't have to go to a job. He doesn't. You know, if he sees the milkman once a day, he's having a busy day. <laughs> uh, and, and his inner life is determinative of everything else about him. So, in the last pages of this book, uh, Tom, Tom Passmore, now completely comfortable wearing his... Uh, Actual or, uh, birth father's wardrobe and living in that guy's house and solving crimes the way the old man did. He goes to uh, the local zoo in uh, Milwaukee with a girl who could have been his girlfriend, only it didn't work. However, he loves her and she loves him in a way too. And they go and they sit in front of a panther cage. Uh, Tom is trying to explain to this lovely young woman, um, why things turned out the way they did. And at the same time, he's watching the panther move, move around the cage. And he's thinking, what that panther does is what that panther is. And then the girl says, Tom, that panther's looking straight at you. <laughs> and I think that's the last bit in the book. We'll, we'll wrap it on that very maybe sort of Rilke-esque. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're just out of time here with the venue, but uh, we'll keep. Uh, okay, thanks. We'll we'll start to wrap it up. And thank you so much uh, for everyone for coming. Thank you for Peter to Peter Stroud.